You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome everyone to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive people and creative renegades who are trying to figure out how to live a good life and stay sane while they're doing it. I'm Leah Burkhart, I HSP, introvert, big old fat nerd, <laughs> goofball, all the things. Um, a little bit of housekeeping, I just want to make mention of the fact that I recently launched a, well, you know, in light of the fact that it is May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month, I recently put together a sort of wellness, well-being on boot camp. Uh, if you go to www.thehealthysensitive.com and click on courses, um, I put together a bunch of resources that are intended to be helpful for anyone who's looking to, I mean, you know, a certain amount of our joy and happiness is just built into the hardware of the way we are all built, built into the way we are built, lay sigh. Um, but a good chunk of how we cultivate a sense of joy, ease, contentment has to do with our behavior. So all the resources I put together are really about that. What are the kinds of behaviors that are evidence-based and are known to kind of dig us out of holes that we sometimes can get ourselves in? Um, I didn't plan on syncing that up with a pandemic at the same time, but there you have it. So if you're looking for tools, for resources, either for yourself or for others, that's there. Um, also, I'm in the process of working on an app. Holy crap, that is so much flippin' work. Um, it's not actually. It's not work for someone who knows what they're doing, but for a Luddite like me, oh, good grief. Because there's a bunch of app builders out there. You know what's a sad, sad state of affairs? When you go online and you're looking to kind of figure out, well, what are my options if I'm trying to build an app? How expensive would it be? How involved is it? And there's a website, that first one that pops up that says top 10 web builder or app builders. And it's like, no, that means that that's the top 10 of some other probably larger number. <laughs> Crap. But stay tuned. Um, my long-term goal is to basically set this whole system up so that you can click one button, get access to all research, like all of the resources I put together. Because um, right now it's like, I do, here's the thing I use for podcasting and here's the host I use for courses and memberships and here's the thing I use here. And I'm just trying to figure out a way to make it easy on you folks. So stay tuned. I'll keep you posted. Just letting y'all know what's happening down the pipeline. Okay, so today's topic, the subject line or the title reads, S is for sensitive, not for special. And I feel like the, you know, as a person who, so I'm a wellness coach, I'm a health educator, and a self-proclaimed highly sensitive person. And I've got to tell you, it is the hardest elevator pitch to give ever. Because <laughs> you can imagine, right? People say, oh, well, what is it that you do? And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, I, I, I'm a content creator, and I'm a health coach. It's like, Oh, sweet. Who do you work with? Like, what, what kind of people do you serve and what is it that you're trying to help them with? Like, oh, I work with highly sensitive people. And it is amazing to watch the expressions on people's faces as they go, ew. <laughs> like, what, what does that mean? Like, is that like contagious? Is that a disease? Like, are you, 
is that another pandemic? (laughs) And it's, and on the other hand though, so for those who already know what this trait is, and I'm gonna go down, you guys, for those of you who know what it is, you'll get exhausted by my willingness to kind of do an overview, but because you're HSPs like me, I have faith in your patience and your capacity to withstand the same information. So hang in there with me. But so for those who already know what this trait is, what I find is, let me back up even further than that actually. I tend to get two different responses and very rarely is it something in between these two. When I say I'm a health coach and I work with highly sensitive people and introverts and creative renegades and I'm trying to help them basically balance between on the one hand, you know, satisfying their ambitious itch that they're trying to scratch in their professional careers, while on the other hand, wanting to stay sane and healthy and be able to get reliable sleep at night. And it's like, okay, great, how do I do that? Uh, I either get, oh yes, that's so cool. I have a friend who's that, or I'm one of those people, or like they self-identify or they know someone and they get really excited and they start babbling on about the awesomeness that is this trait. So they, they think of themselves as being super special. Or if I'm talking to folks who identify as having this trait, they might, they sort of say, yeah, it's so hard because just no one gets me. And they go into this emo track, which is super obnoxious, especially as one who has the trait. And it's like, no, you're a bad rep. Like you're making it as the rest of us look bad. Or I get the other response. And that's the one I kind of referred to with the EU. That's gross. Is that contagious? So I just really want to take a moment to flesh out what is this thing that I'm calling high sensitivity? Um, What are some of the pros? And I really want to dive more into, okay, what are the cons? Because there are a bunch. And how do we leverage our strengths and while at the same time working on our weaknesses? So again, S is for sensitive, not for special. So if you're kind of hoping for an ego boost here, this might not be the episode for you. Maybe just skip it and go to the next one. (laughs) So first of all, what does it mean to be a highly sensitive person? Well, first of all, you are not a highly sensitive person. It always makes me a little aggravated when I have to use this language because it's as if by having this trait, it's defining you. And that's gross. It no more defines you to, to have this trait than it defines you to have brown hair or dark skin or, you know, which isn't to say that, you know, depending on what trait you're looking at, it could have serious consequences. So I'm not saying, here's, here's a really good example that was given in, uh, that an author gave for high sensitivity. He said, it, it's sort of like saying, oh, I have fair skin. Well, is that good? Well, I mean, it kind of depends on where you are. I mean, certainly culturally, there's a lot of racism and bigotry that for whatever winning lottery reasons, you ended up on the with the bigger end of that stick. So that could be good, question mark. I mean, depending on how much of a jerk you are. But if what you're asking is, well, is it good? And you're stuck on the beach on a tropical island. Nope, that's bad. <laughs> Not unless you can find a lot of shade and serious, you know, copious amounts of sunblock. It's just a trait. And then what we people have a tendency to do as soon as we see a trait is we sort of preemptively or not preemptively, but what we like to do is build stories around these traits. 
So we as a culture like to say things like it's good to be blonde or good to be a brunette. It's not good to be blonde or brunette. We say it's good to be white or good to be black. Well, it's not good to be either. It just is. But we humans are storytellers and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that either. But it's just useful to remember that about the way our brains work. We have a tendency to want to go immediately from, oh, interesting fact, all the way to let's make a fun story out of that. So what a lot of people who have this trait tend to do is they'll say, I'm a highly sensitive person, and they'll go the route of making that their whole identity. Well, that's lame. <laughs> or not, it's not even lame. I mean, if it makes you happy, then it's fine. But it's very limiting. And the reality is, you know, high sensitivity comes in all shapes, sizes, and flavors. So let's break it down here. How do you know if you might be a person who has this trait? So Elaine Aaron, PhD, smart cookie, real person, not a woo-woo psychic person who's trying to champion mind readers. It's nothing like that. Uh, an academic has studied brain maps and looked at how different people's brains work and she's identified that about 20% of the population of humans and a number of other species, mind you. So it's not just in humans that this trait shows up. They, they have this trait that she's called sensory processing sensitivity. How would you know if you had this trait? Well, she uses an acronym, which I find very helpful, even though I don't think the acronym itself is invigorating, but it's just DOES, D-O-E-S. So D is for depth of processing as in, uh, if I get, if I start becoming intrigued by an idea, I chew on it for a long time. What that means is I'm very rarely bored. If you put me by myself in a room and say, just figure it out, do something on yourself, on your own, not going to be a problem. I live in my headspace and I'm perfectly content to do so most of the time, unless, you know, my brain happens to be going to dark, dark places that can be very challenging. So it's depth of processing. It, it, you might know these individuals when they go and see an action movie and start talking about the symbolism as it relates to our cultural dynamics and, you know, trying to piece apart the, I don't know, socioeconomic and political implications of French fries. You might be dealing with an HSP. Just saying. Um, o is overstimulation. So everybody's got a window of optimal stimulation and we're constantly adjusting to stay within that window. This is true of all human beings. It's not pleasant to be too high above your window because that's anxiety and it's not pleasant to be too below your window. That's boredom and apathy. So we like to stay within this like pleasant space of stimulated enough that I'm entertained, not so stimulated that I'm overwhelmed. So if you can imagine this window, I just want you to take the ceiling of it and lower it down a notch. That is what it's like to have sensory processing sensitivity. It's easier to get overstimulated. So an example that you might find in a person that you know would be, oh, I love music. I'm not super crazy about going to loud concerts though. There's so many people and there's these flashy lights and you can't even flip and hear the music. Like you're, you're too busy hearing the crowd. I don't know. That's, and it's not necessarily the case that you have sensory processing sensitivity, but that's a good indicator. The next is E, emotional sensitivity. And I like to take this a notch forward and say uh, the capacity for emotional granularity. 
So if you're wondering what emotional granularity is, I've been speaking about it for the last few episodes, but uh, Lisa Barrett, PhD, again, another smart cookie, speaks at, at length about it. And in essence, to have emotional granularity is to have the ability to identify emotional experiences that you're having with a lot of nuance. So some people's emotional vocabulary is, you know, sad, mad, happy. Uh, Others might have a more robust and uh, subtle repertoire, if you will. So they might say, I'm feeling kind of apathetic. I'm bored. I'm anxious. I'm melancholy. I'm sad. I'm uh, nervous. I'm excited. I'm jubilant. I'm joyful. I'm delighted. And so on. So the more granularity, so the greater number of words that you can pull on to identify your emotional experience, the greater one's emotional intelligence or what some folks call EQ. So highly sensitive people, because their their nervous systems are so acute, have tremendous capacity for emotional granularity. They don't always use it, but they got the capacity. So there's potential. <laughs> and then the final one is S for sensory sensitivity. So these are the folks who probably are more likely to, to be bothered by weird lighting. Uh, they, they're the first ones to smell the weird thing in the refrigerator that might be going bad. Uh, they might notice when, so like if they walk into a room and two people have been fighting and that fight has just ended and it will almost be like, whoa, how did you, like they'll walk in the room and just know that something's off. And other people might say, whoa, are you psychic? Like, that's so cool. And it's not really that. It's more that they're looking very, they're very attuned to the subtleties in people's facial expressions and they're reading the room more subtly. So there you have it. Sensory processing sensitivity. Now, like I said, it's not uncommon when I start talking about this for people to go in one of two directions, either to the direction of, whoa, that's so cool. It's like having a superpower. Sensitive means special. As in, I'm so super cool and no one gets me. Please insert eye roll here. Too bad you can't have emojis in a podcast. That's a bummer. (laughs) So just to be clear, I want to debunk some things. Highly sensitive people are not mind readers. Uh, They have the ability to cue into subtle nuances in their environment. And so it sometimes might feel like because they're paying such close attention to you, they are reading your cues well, but they're just as likely to read them poorly and to misread them. Like if, so here's a good example. Uh, let's say you've got, you've, you're, there's two people in a romantic relationship and one of them has sensory processing sensitivity. So on the spectrum of sensitivity, one is on the farther end and closer to being sensitive. And the other person is not. They are in the other 80% of everyday homo sapiens. And they're in an argument. Um, from the outside looking in, you would imagine, because let's say that the one who's less sensitive is louder. Well, the one who is more sensitive is much more likely to back down for two reasons. They mistakenly believe that their partner has a greater stake in the argument than does the the more sensitive person because they're so dang loud. Like, look at you yelling. Clearly, this is more important to you. When in fact, that's not actually true. Their internal experience, let's say if if we put it on a spectrum, let's say... I don't know, let's say Betty is the sensitive person and Mark is the, you know, the the standard person and Mark wants to go and have Chinese food and Betty wants to go and have Italian. I mean, I'm just really pulling this out of my tush here, but okay, so Betty might actually, on a scale of one to 10, in terms of 10 being I care a lot and one being DGAF, 
Betty might actually be at an eight or a nine, but those who have sensory processing sensitivity don't tend to be very loud, or at least when they're angry or they're frustrated, they have to chew on it. Like it, it takes a lot for them to self-advocate because it's extremely uncomfortable to be angry because really emotions are just sensory data trickling in that our brains fire in and create stories around, just like I was talking about earlier. It's not that these traits are good or bad, it's that we have a tendency to create stories about them after the fact. Okay, so here I am, here I'm Betty, and I'm. it's important to me that we go and have Italian. I really, really want Italian, but my very loud partner is making his case that he wants Chinese. So I go, well, okay, I can push hard for Italian and end up eating Italian food, but then I'll make my person unhappy. And the discomfort I will feel from dealing with his unhappiness is greater than the discomfort I would feel from eating Chinese food. So screw it, I'm just fine, let's go and have Chinese. In reality, Mark, I don't even, I don't even remember if that was the name I used to begin with, but our, our friend, our non-HSP friend, maybe he was only at a four or a five, but his level of comfort with anger, frustration, and his willingness to be loud is greater because it's not as uncomfortable for him to, to use his grown-up voice. <laughs> so um, this is what I mean when I say highly sensitive people are not necessarily mind readers or even necessarily always good at reading cues. They're good at reading subtle changes and nuances in your cues, and they do tend to pay very close attention to the people they love, but they might be misreading because no single person can ever look to the other human and be able to fully identify what's going on in their inner world. That's not available to us. I can only make assumptions based on what I'm seeing and observing. So are they mind readers? No. Are they super empathetic? They can be. So be, you have to imagine, because we all, with the exception of sociopaths, have the capacity for empathy. And really when you're dealing with someone who has a more vigilant nervous system, is if I look to someone and I see that they are in pain, we all have mirror neurons that fire in our brains. And once those start to fire, we can start to, it's like, it's like we internally put ourselves in their shoes and we start to imagine, well, what would I be feeling if I were in that space? That's empathy. Well, maybe I'm being super empathetic, but maybe I'm making assumptions based on how I would feel in that spot rather than asking, how do you feel in your spot? Um, also beyond that, Highly sensitive people can be extremely obnoxious and selfish and miserable human beings to hang around if they haven't taken proper care of themselves. So here's a classic example. It's sort of like the passive aggressive maneuver of a, of a highly sensitive person. They might say, oh God, I was invited to a party and I really, really don't want to go. But I also don't want to deal with the repercussions of not going, so screw it, I'll just go. And then they just kind of frump along with the party the whole time being miserable. And so now everyone's uncomfortable because, well, you were invited because they like you, but you didn't want to be there. And rather than self-advocating, which is uncomfortable, you decided to just go with it. But now, so you can see where this could end up, right? And rather than fully leaning in and saying, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be a pleasant person. I'm, I'm just going to deal or fully owning, no, I really don't want to go. I love you, but I don't want to go tonight. You've done this weird wonky middle path where it's like you're going, but you're upset about it and you're not going to say that you're upset about it. So you're just going to be, I don't even know. So that's 
basically people pleasing gone wrong, gone really, really wrong. It's a selfish representation. So yes, highly sensitive people can be very empathetic, but there's likely to be a pain in the butt as anyone else. So don't get, don't get too big for your britches, HSPs. Are they super creative? That's a big one. Oh, highly sensitive people, they're so creative. Well, again, they can be, um, you know, again, it, so here's an example of how having a more vigilant nervous system can be helpful. If you're feeling a wider at like landscape of emotions and on top of that, you've got that sensory sensitivity. So uh, it's when you, people who have this trait often see a greater variety of colors in a painting than the average person will. So you can imagine how those two things would lend themselves well to then recreating a piece of art that would be delightful, but they're not necessarily creative. So there's certainly a correlation, but that is not necessarily true. So this is another one that comes up. HSPs are smarter or they're deeper. I, sometimes, um, kind of depends on how you define smart. They cue into subtlety, but they can also miss the forest through the trees. So I might be so preoccupied with the details of my surroundings that I've Okay, here's a perfectly good example. I went to the Met. So I went to the Museum of, of what does the Met stand for? I'll be go to hell. I don't actually know. Anyway, Museum of Art in New York City. I'm going. Uh, I went, at the time, I was with a gentleman I was dating. And he, because he's a very kind human, was like, let's go. And I will patiently watch as you move through this ginormous museum. And... To begin with, there's all these little arts and crafts and artifacts that you'll see. And I go, oh, look how pretty. Oh, look how pretty. And this poor man is like, oh, Jesus Christ. Is she going to see the ginormous statue that's in front of her face? Or is she going to constantly be looking at these teeny tiny little artifacts? And so finally, after several moments of, again, a lot of patience, he taps me on the shoulder and says, you know, Leah, if you do this the entire time, we will be here for a week. Like we, we only have the day <laughs> and, you know, we sort of coasted through the museum and I'm not, again, he wasn't belittling. He was lovely. It was all great, but that was a classic and very benign example of missing the forest through the trees. Like I got so cued in to the details of things that I was missing some of the extraordinary pieces of art. Um, and also we have a tendency to get lost. We're so preoccupied with our thoughts. We might lose sight of our environment and be totally lost in the physical sense of things. So can we be smart? Yeah, but sometimes we can be dumb. Oh, here's another one that I love. Uh, highly sensitive people are usually women. That is oh so very wrong. There is precisely as many men as there are women who have this trait. What's unfortunate is that men are less likely to identify with it for obvious reasons, or at least in the United States. It's not true in a lot of Asian cultures. Uh, but at any rate, the assumption is there's more women than men who are sensitive, when the reality is, no, e they come in equal numbers, but men are not encouraged to foster this particular trait. They're encouraged to hide it, and often they do so to their detriment. So equal numbers, it's 20% of people, 50-50 divide, men and women both have this trait. And, you know, your degree of sensitivity is not... It, it's not like they're on the same spectrum of badassery. So the closer you get to sensitivity, the farther away you get from being a badass. You can, in fact, be both. They are two different spectrums. So calm down, gentlemen. If you're sensitive, it's not to say that you're not also strong. Uh, prone to anxiety. 
That's a big one. Um, and possibly the reality. So the assumption about HSPs is that they're it, it, like it can, especially when research was first being done, researched when the research was first being researched. <laughs> I sound so smart. Uh, at the beginning of the research that was done on the straight, they, it was presumed that this was a negative thing, like it was linked and correlated with anxiety and depression, which was only, it turns out, true when these individuals were brought up in households that were unsafe, toxic, etc. So uh, what a, a researcher a little bit later down the line ended up saying is they're more like orchid kids. So orchids are extraordinarily resilient, but they just have to be properly cared for. Dandelions, they can grow anywhere. They're fine. <laughs> and so HSPs are more, they're likened to being orchids in that sense. If they're in an environment that's relatively safe and stable, their capacity for long-lived, healthy, emotionally stable lives is in fact even greater than the average person. But the minute that they're put and thrust into, especially an unnecessarily toxic environment, uh, the more likely they'll be prone to anxiety and depression. Okay, so are they boring then? <laughs> this is one that, well, I don't think we're boring, but I'm a little biased. I happen to love hanging out with me. <laughs> so what do you do? But the the sense is, oh, they must love boring things. Because like I, I know I mentioned before, okay, well, the window of stimulation that sensitive people tend to like is like the ceiling is a little lower. Which is true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they love boring things. Because there's another trait, and I know I've mentioned this multiple times, sensory seeking behavior. So to be to have sensory processing sensitivity really is just about being sensitive to risk. We don't like it. But to have sensory seeking traits in our built into the, the, the hardware means that we're sensitive to rewards. So you can have both. They're not on the same spectrum any more than badassery and sensitivity are. So you could end up being the kind of person who loves novelty, loves to take risks, loves to try new things, loves to see new things, travel. Uh, you love speed. I don't mean the drug. I mean like being in a vehicle that's going fast. While at the same time having this other trait of high sensitivity where you are constantly getting inundated with a lot of stimulus. And that's what Elaine Aaron, the primary researcher, talks about is it's like having one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake at all times. So just because you have your ceiling a little bit lower, it doesn't mean that your floor isn't also high. All right. So they can't fight worth a damn. That's a big assumption. Not technically true. Um, they can be great fighters and extraordinary leaders. Uh, again, orchid kids. So if they were well-groomed and well-treated when they were children and or have done the work that they need to do as adults to overcome the challenges of their childhood, they'll be fabulous human beings and very strong, resilient human beings. And the best visual I have for this is honestly uh, martial arts. I mean, most martial art masters, I mean, of any branch of martial arts that you want to select, tend to do very little actual fighting because where their strengths lie is in the ability to read a room and effectively disarm it before a fight really comes about. So they have, they've fostered that sensitivity, if you will. This is also why, and I know I've mentioned this in other episodes, cultures where many martial arts 
branches originate from, so a lot of Asian cultures, they tend to honor and uh, celebrate sensitivity. So here in Canada and the United States, to be highly sensitive is a challenge. If you're more boisterous, if you're a go-getter, that's celebrated. In Japan and in many areas of China, if you're boisterous and kind of you take up a lot of space in a room, you're kind of like, oh, oh, you're that guy. Okay. So it's actually harder to make friends. You're less popular. But if you're sensitive, you're more popular because you're seen as harmonious. You're seen as being intelligent. Um, Fun fact, that was also true at one point in many Western civilization or Western uh, cultures. But that's, I digress. I'll talk more about that when I talk in the next episode. Teaser. Woohoo. But Yes, it's true. Highly sensitive people can fight perfectly and like adequately. Thank you very much. Now, having said all of that, I also don't want to go so far to the, you know, slice of humble pie where I start saying that we should be self-deprecating because there is a tendency to go there too. You know, to be sensitive must be akin to being the other kind of special. Like, oh, sensitive. So like on the spectrum... No, (laughs) it's different. It's different. And it's true. Those who have, who are on the spectrum of autism also tend to have some sensitivities. I'm not denying that, but that's not what this trait is about. It's not an inherent challenge. All right. So it's funny. I also, there's a, I've been reading some articles that talk about how highly sensitive people attract narcissists, which it's not wrong. It is kind of fascinating really, because HSPs tend to want to like nurture, solve problems. And you can imagine a narcissist who loves for people to give them their undivided attention. And the cycle can go into this really toxic, horrible place. Uh, have, I've been in those, I've been in a relationship like that and it was, um, well, very uncomfortable. It was not good for either of us. So let that out, let that go. But I always find it mildly entertaining that no one mentions the fact that it is entirely possible to be a highly sensitive person and also be narcissistic. And I don't just mean having the qualities of, but being a true clinical narcissist. You know, they're not mutually exclusive. Thinking, you know, again, it's about a sensory processing sensitivity. It's just how you respond to stimulus. So you could very easily use this trait as a means of getting more attention and you can be very manipulative with it and about it so I don't want anyone here thinking so many people I know like oh these sensitive people we're so lovely we're so loving if only the world would just embrace us and yeah I mean the world should embrace you or at least make room for you 100% yes all the yes but also doesn't mean at the expense of others. It's not like, oh, you're super cool and other people just don't get you because you're so cool they can't understand you. Like, oh, get away from me with that. No, God, no, so much no. Anyway, so I was listening to a podcast recently and I'm just looking through my notes here. David Brooks was the speaker and I loved it. I, I think I may have even referenced this speech, TED Talk whatever you want to call it. I've referenced him before. Oh God, just moving here, getting stiff. Uh, So yeah, David Brooks, and he titled his talk, Make Your Life About Your Eulogy, Not Your Resume, or Live for Your Eulogy, Not for Your Resume, 
So in essence, what he was talking about is aiming to live a life of um, that, that follows your personal values. And in, this, in the talk, he says, um, you know, there's really two atoms inside of us. So he's leaning on religious references here and not to say that he was trying to convert folks to Christianity by any means, but he was using it symbolically. So there's, you can even go, you can also use two wolves for those of you who are like me and get a little itchy around religion. Um, there's Adam one who is ambitious, wants to create, wants to build, wants to conquer. And then there's Adam two that wants to love, wants to connect, wants to sacrifice. And ideally we're, we're living a life that balances them both. But as it happens, we live in a culture that really only honors one of them. So would you like to guess which one? <laughs> uh, we only really honor Adam one, the go-getter, the builder, the conqueror. And the, that's the person who's living for their resume instead of their eulogy. And so he, he does it, a really nice job of distilling all of this and saying, if, you know, when you're feeding Adam one, if you will, or, or you know, that, that, that part of yourself, you're developing and cultivating and, and leaning into your strengths, which isn't bad. That's great. But if that's all you do, then you just become this shrewd human being who's constantly looking for your next win. But to feed the second of those two, so Adam two, it's about fighting your weaknesses. That's how you build your depth of character. And it was, so I recently went to, I guess I call it a training. Um, we were invited, I'm a community health educator in my, in my other line of work, and there was all this buzz about, like, I'm, I'm really, I'll, I'll just say it, it was like the, the outward mindset group book thing. And everyone and their mother was just amazed by it, thought it was so great, and they said, you should go. So my colleagues and I went to see what they were gonna talk about. And the entire time they were trying to get employees at the hospital that I work in, to get on board with this concept of, you know, instead of always looking at how you can help yourself, look at how you can help others. Always be looking for how you can help others because that will inadvertently help yourself. And now I'm not mocking that at all. I think it's a lovely way to live. But my challenge to him as he was speaking, you know, he stopped for a moment, you know, as he's going on and on. And, and I, I said, well, you do realize you're talking to a group of nurses and educators and healers like are you aware of that and he says well yeah absolutely it's like okay great are you aware of the fact that nurses very rarely take breaks and in fact they wear their hard work like a badge of honor and the hardest problem that most of those individuals who are responsible for managing nurses have is forcing them to take their breaks and there's an awkward silence and he says well yeah okay and it's like <sighs> Dude, like I wanted so badly to just kind of be like, dude, read the room. <laughs> this isn't the content that this group of people needs. And he, he I, to give this poor man some credit, he was so obviously a recovering bro. You've met these people where you can tell maybe they lived their life in a, a relatively selfish, from a selfish paradigm, and then they've stumbled onto whether it's a religious branch or, or some kind of a philosophy that excited them or perhaps a leader that in, inspired them and they go, whoa, like someone has just knocked them in the head just the right way to realize the world is bigger than me and I feel better when I serve others. 
whoa. And I'm, of course, sitting back going like, oh, sweetie, that's nice. Welcome. Welcome. You have arrived. <laughs> but what there's a lot of people who are on the other end of that spectrum. They're such welcome mats. They're so preoccupied with helping others first before themselves that they're giving forth from an empty cup. And that doesn't serve anyone because what that ends up harboring is resentment. So Brene Brown talks a lot about this and her research around shame and resiliency and, um, you know, wholehearted living. And she's like, you know, you can't have true vulnerability and like a good, well-lived life without also having strong boundaries. And so some people, their boundaries are so thick that you just got to, you're, you're practically busting out the jackhammer out to get them to the place where it's like, dude, open up. But some people have no boundaries. And while they're constantly serving, they're, they're building resentment and they're sacrificing their health and their well-being and their sanity in order to live the life of self-sacrifice that they're living. So an example that's actually coming to my mind is with Mother Teresa. She reported, you know, she was telling a story of when she was first you know, a young nun and she was giving, giving, giving just all day long, like very little rest. And her sisters came to her and said, Teresa, like, we love you, girl, but you're going to have to take a nap. Rest. And she said, no, 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 no. You know, God doesn't rest. I won't rest. And everyone else like, OK, well, we're just going to have to let her ride this out because clearly she doesn't want to listen to us. And sure enough, she exhausted herself to such a degree that she was just out of commission for, I don't know how long, I, I don't a day, several days, a week, several weeks. And it was, it took that for her to realize, oh, if I don't make this a sustainable way of living, it's not just that I will be out of commission. My being out of commission hurts those I might otherwise have been able to serve. And that was enough for her to realize, okay, maybe I need to put some parameters around this and make it sustainable. So that's what came to my mind just now because this poor man who he was so excited and I was excited for him, <laughs> but this was not the content this particular group of people needed. Like they needed the boundary talk. They didn't need the open yourself up talk. So, okay, with that in mind, what is it that highly sensitive people often need to reckon with? What are our weak points? And this isn't gonna be true for every person with sensory processing sensitivity but it's what I'm seeing the most of and I think it's worth taking a moment to kind of you know bump you on the head and be like dude you have weaknesses too <laughs> um so one is people pleasing HSPs are notorious people pleasers and again it comes from a good place at its in its origin it's like I want to please you because that feels good but it has a really dark shadow it can be more like, well, I want to please you because if you're pleased, then that means I'm safe. That's not really about sacrifice. That's about, that's, that's throwing the boomerang knowing it's coming back. And that's kind of, it's selfish and it, it's not authentic. So what highly, highly sensitive people often need to work on is walking that line between being doormats and being aggressors. So being assertive being clear. As Brene Brown says, clear is kind. So as an example, if you're someone who identifies with having one of these traits or like you're listening and you're thinking, well, maybe I might have this trait, like maybe. Okay. So you're invited to do a thing and you don't really want to go. Well, you've got some options. You can go buckle down and deal with it, or you can be assertive and say, you know, I really appreciate that you invited me. And I, 
a big part of me absolutely wants to go so I can spend time with you. But I got to tell you, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to bow out tonight. 99% of the time, the response you're going to get is, okay. That's it. That's the end of that story. It's not exciting. So they are now in the place where they're like, oh, cool. Thank you. I know where you stand. And you are now in a place where you get to go home. Congratulations. So it's not about being a jerk where it's like, ew, why would I want to go to your stupid party? That's Jerkosaurus Rex. And it's also not about being a doormat. Yeah, yeah, whatever you want. No, 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 no. <laughs> if you go, there's nothing wrong with that. So there are times in life where it might be appropriate to kind of dig deep and like pull your big girl pants on or pur- pull your big boy pants on and say, you know, I've said no enough. I probably should just buck up and do it. And I'll probably even have a good time. And you know what? You very well might. You might end up being fed by it even. You never know. Another problem HSPs often have is feel like being defensive, which to be fair, when you live in a culture that champions boisterous behavior and you yourself, your go-to inclination is to be more thoughtful, reserved, calculating, you know, contemplating, it doesn't feel good to always have to like explain yourself. I can, I, I can definitely testify to that. But being defensive is often unnecessary. All you have to do is say what, you know, Having a good boundary really boils down to this. Identify what is okay and what is not okay and be clear. That's it. So you don't have to be defensive. Just try and strike a balance. Um, Remember, because this is, you know, a lot of highly sensitive people fall in this camp where they think they have to make one of two choices. I can either fully contribute to my community and be of service and just understand that I will pay the price for that. I'll probably be more anxious. I probably won't sleep as well as I'd like but at least everyone else is served. Or I can take care of myself, but the sacrifice I'll have to make is all of the service I could have otherwise provided. And the reality is you can have both, but you can't have both the way that your average person can do both. You're not gonna be the boisterous, crazy, like adventurer meets extrovert. You're gonna have to just do it a little different. And I can't tell you what that will necessarily look like. I can tell you what it looks like for me, so as an example, for me and trying to figure out what that balance looks like, it's, it's like, okay, well, I really want to do this thing. So I bookend both sides of it. So if I want to go to a party or go to a concert or go and do the thing, I really do want to do the thing. But now I understand that my system works a little differently. I can't do the thing on Monday and then do another thing on Tuesday and then Wednesday and Thursday and so on. I mean, I can but then I suffer and I suffer unnecessarily. And that's not what my people want for me. That wasn't their intention. Often when people are inviting you into something, they're giving you that as an invitation because they love you and they enjoy your company. So the goal is to honor that while also honoring yourself. And if you have to choose between disappointing yourself and disappointing others, always, always, always disappoint others. Always disappoint others. Because if you're constantly being honest, what that ultimately ends up attracting for yourself are people who will love you for you, not love you in spite of you. There's, you know, I know I've mentioned this book before, but it's the, um, oh, Having the Courage to be Disliked. That's the name of the book. And unfortunately, I can't remember the name. But the concept is, quite simply, if 
if you are willing to be, if you, if everyone likes you, you must be doing something wrong because you're lying to someone. No one can please everyone and be truthful. This is part of why people don't love politicians. That's what politicians are really trying to achieve. They want everyone to like them because if you like me, you'll vote for me. And that comes off as extremely inauthentic. If, however, you're willing to be honest, not disrespectful, but honest, in all likelihood, what you'll end up with is perhaps a smaller group of people in your, in your corner, but they'll die in a sword for you and you'll die in a sword for them. I mean, not literally, but you know where I'm going with this anyway. So this also brings me to, you know, learning to embrace cultural rituals and be willing to negotiate on this. Uh, This is really common with HSPs. They'll say things to me like, you know, I just don't love the butterfly fluff of conversation. That's not my jam. I don't really want to, I don't really care what you do for a living. I don't really care how you're doing today. I don't want to talk about the weather. It's not interesting to me. Can we just cut to the chase? What are you interested in? Who are you? What, what excites you? What gets you off? Like, can we talk about that stuff? (laughs) All the rest is just the fluffy stuff that gets to the the core of it. And as one who feels that way, and I just want to launch right in and be like, yeah, baby, let's do this. You know, there's value in, like, because some of my closest friends are extroverted types. And they're very, like, the difference for an extrovert and an introvert is not love of people. Both of those individuals often love other humans. But extroverts get recharged in any type of conversation. It is just merely being in conversation with another person that feeds. Whereas introverts tend to be more inclined to go, wanna go into that deep you know, space, which is lovely. But don't dismiss the fluff and just assume that it's all bad. Play with it. You know, when people start coming over to you and they start with the fluff, instead of immediately thinking that they must, of course, be shallow, dance with it. See what happens, get curious about it because Maybe they want to go deep too, but they're just trying to feel it out. They, maybe they're, the tempo of the way they move into that space is a little slower. Just be patient and be willing to embrace some of what that offers. Because I know for myself, I've played plenty of experiments where I just assume when I'm going to some networking event or some you know, party where it's like, oh crap, it's going to be, this is going to be a bummer. And When I push myself to go and I come from a place of, you know what, just don't make any assumptions. Go in there, be curious, see what happens. Nine times out of 10, I really enjoy it. I either walk away having met some really interesting people and connecting with, because I will still gravitate to one or two conversations in a whole room and that's okay. Or maybe I will have walked out of the room having made not really any deep connections with folks, but maybe I learned something. Maybe I got to just be a people watcher, you know, the creepy one in the corner. (laughs) Like I'm definitely giving, I'm going to make so many friends from this podcast, (laughs) but be willing to, to dance with some of these cultural rituals rather than immediately dismiss them as being only for the shallow. Um, Learn how to get comfortable with self-advocacy. I've said that a lot in this episode, but beyond self-advocacy, also self-promotion. So I know some highly sensitive people that are beasts in terms of their work ethic. They will knock it out of the park every time. Where they're challenged is when they have when they present that content, whether it's the stuff content for their business, whether it's content for insert whatever here, and they struggle to say, "Yeah, and I am awesome," because that feels weird to them. There's nothing wrong with feeling good about what you've achieved. 
you know, be willing to do self-promotion, but just find a way to do it that feels right. Because think about the people that you find inspiring. There are a number of people who self-promote, but they do it in a way that makes me excited for them. I'm not just proud of them. I'm proud for them. Um, Curate your life is another one. So a lot of times highly sensitive people try and live their lives in accordance with the expectations of what others think of as being good or bad. Nah, man, don't do that. Like that's dumb. That doesn't work for you. Be, you know, get really clear about, you know, get all of the garbage out of your life that you don't need. Because if you're someone who's going to chew on your thoughts more so than the average person, you don't want a lot of distractions. So I find it really interesting that highly sensitive people tend to be minimalists because they don't need a lot of clutter in their lives. They don't need a lot of friends in their lives. They're the ones who quite often say, well, I've only got 10 or 15 people in my, in my tribe, but I love my people. They might even only have one. But man, I love my person. And this, and likewise, it's like, man, I've got one bed and one tiny bedside table in my bedroom. But I love my bed and I love that bedside table. But that's all I need. And the final one is stop apologizing unnecessarily. Now, if you are in the wrong, own it. I'm not saying don't ever apologize. But HSPs have a tendency to apologize all the time. It's more about being strategic and being deliberate about your apologies. If you've done someone a wrong, stand still, be quiet, say, I'm sorry. And if you mean it, what you also mean as a follow-up is, I'm going to do everything in my power to not do that to you again. That's my real apology. I'm going to show you my apology with my actions. But don't apologize unnecessarily. <laughs> like. If someone bumps into you, you don't have to apologize. And don't apologize for who you are. There's value in holding up a boundary. It's okay. And again, kind of back in the, the whole concept of, you know, having the courage to be disliked. I, I, I may have even mentioned this in the last episode, but I'm, I'm in the middle of buying a house. <sighs> Sigh. I... I think I may have told you this, and if not, if you've heard this already, just go ahead and click off. You're done now. <laughs> but I put in an offer for a house. This was two months ago. This was before the pandemic kicked in, I swear. It was just enough so that the interest rates had come down into this really sweet spot. And so I thought, oh, let's just put in an offer. They accepted, and then, you know, chaos ensued. But here we are, two months later, uh, and I was set to sign the papers. We were supposed to get it all done by May 12th, and they asked for an extension a one month extension because their house wasn't finished yet. So I did my homework and it's like, all right, well, what would that cost? Because I'm not willing to pay it, but if they're willing to pay for the extension. And then it was, all right, well, let's see what the landlord is willing to do because I'm currently renting. Maybe he's willing to give me that extension. So everyone was okay with the extension. But my problem was, okay, so what guarantee can I be given that come the, you know, 24 hours before this next extension, they're not going to ask for another one. And then I'm really going to be in a bind because now I don't have a place to live. And they're not leaving their house. And the agent I worked with said, well, you have no guarantee at all. I'm like, well, that's not going to work for me. So I sat with it some more. And again, my landlord was being fabulous. He was being extremely flexible. He's like, hey, I can work with you. It's a big deal to buy a house. It's really not a problem. It's uncomfortable, but, you know, these things happen. But I was not willing. So, So basically... The builders, so there's there's all these different, there's the whole stream of people in this scenario, right? There's the builders of the house that the sellers who are selling me their house want to move into. 
those builders weren't either not communicating effectively or I I don't know what was going on there. But at the very last minute, they're like, just kidding, we need another month. (laughs) So they had problems and they made those problems the seller's problems. Well, now they have to figure out where to go and they didn't want to. So they were willing to make their problems my problems. I, however, was not willing to make my problems my landlord's problems. And by extension, the problem of anyone who was currently walking through my apartment as a prospective apartment and maybe getting excited about it and thinking they had a place to move into that they liked. And then I was going to pull the rug from under them and say, just kidding. (laughs) So I bit back and I said, no, you know, so the agent worked with me and developed a counter said, listen, we'll give you an extension, but not a full month. We'll give you until the first of June. And on May 31st, what's going to happen is we are going to do a walkthrough of the house that you theoretically will have moved out of. If you have not moved out, we terminate the contract, period. That's your last extension. Do not collect $200. Do not pass go. Done. They didn't like it. So they responded by saying, well, not only will we not sign that, but we won't give you your earnest money back because, well, we don't want to. And when I spoke with the agent, the agent said, well, that's absurd. They're the ones who are out of contract, not you. Basically, all this would require of you is the willingness to pay a few hundred dollars more and take them to small claims court and you would get your earnest money. Like no judge on the planet is not going to give you your money back. And so I said, well, I mean, so worst case scenario, I lose $3,000, which is not an an insignificant amount, but I'd rather lose that than go forward. So fine. So we told them. Hey, you have until 12 p.m. today, so noon, to change your mind. Um, And that was at 9.45. And at 11.48, they signed it. Now, I tell you this story not to be like, how amazing is it? I have a house now because I don't yet. I'll let you know on May 31st. (laughs) But it felt great to me to be, and pardon my language, but a bitch. Because I wasn't just defending myself. I was being clear, first of all, and saying, here's my boundary. You will not cross this boundary. You're asking me for tens of thousands of dollars that I'm willing to give to you, but not unless you're willing to leave the house that you're asking me the money for. (laughs) You have to actually get out. So it was good for me because my tendency, my weak point is to go to people pleaser mode. I want to be nimble. I want to be flexible. And there are plenty of scenarios in life where that is an extraordinary asset. This was not one of those situations. So I was putting up a boundary for myself and saying, no, It stops here. But that didn't just help me. I was then able to go because apparently my landlord was showing the place and he said, hey, is there any way you could let me know where you stand a little bit before June 19th? And I said, yes. As a matter of fact, I will be able to tell you for sure on May 31st whether or not I'm leaving. And I will still be able to pay you for for the month of June because I've told, you know, given how flexible he was being, I'm willing to do that for him. Rather than just, okay, well, now I'm leaving. No money for you. Um, And so, but if you have tenants who want to move in sooner, well, then great. So, but I can tell you absolutely on May 31st. So that helps my landlord because this is his business. Like, I like the business relationship I have with my landlord at present. And I have no intention of fraying it. So now I'm saying to my landlord, I'm willing to defend you and your business. And on top of that, I'm willing to defend the rights of the people who might be excited about this space and who are getting excited for no good reason. 
And that feels good to me because at least I'm walking with a measure of integrity. And I'm excited about this because this is something that's really, really hard for me. I don't imagine me telling the story is exciting a lot of you. There's plenty of you out there who are listening going, yeah, no, duh, not a big deal. But for me, that's a big deal. This was my way of working on my weaknesses. So that's just to give you an example. Just because you're being a bitch doesn't mean you're being unkind. Just because you're being assertive and firm and potentially even feisty, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. It's not about being kind or about being unkind. It's about being thoughtful and discerning. What is the appropriate response that this situation calls for? How can you be the most effective version of yourself given the circumstances? So, in sum, <laughs> so being highly sensitive is not awesome. It's also not terrible. Um, remember, 20% of humans have it, as well as many other species. So it's clearly beneficial enough that this trait hasn't been weeded out of the species. So it's worth celebrating, but not so much that you should feel like you're super special and no one gets you because you're just too dang awesome. Um, and to be clear, on the flip side, there is nothing wrong with being a bro or a go-getter. You, you, know, you want those cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs adventurers to venture out and discover new pastures. That's a good thing. But you also want HSPs, you know, people who have a more vigilant nervous system, to be around to check for unnecessary suffering and struggle that you might possibly subject yourself to. It's like you want the crazy cuckoo guy who builds the plane and who's willing to test it out and see if it can fly. You might also want the engineer who's testing all of the equipment afterward when you want to make it a regular thing to say, mm, you missed something, something broke here. Before you fly your next round, you might want to make sure that your engine's running properly. Just saying. So the good news then about being or having sensory processing sensitivity is that you're not alone. I mean, you're, you're weird. Don't like, but lean into the weird. Weird is good. <laughs> like, so, but you're not the only person. The bad news is you're not special. I mean, you're special in that you're uniquely you and you're a lovely little flower and all that good stuff. But, you know, you are a gloriously complex, paradoxical human being. And among a myriad of other traits, including your hair color, your skin color, your height and weight and proclivities to enjoy underwater basket weaving or your love of novels or your dog preference or cat preference, you also just happen to have a slightly more vigilant nervous system. Don't be mad at it. Just, it's like being mad at driving a Ferrari. A Ferrari's not the same thing as a four-wheel truck. There's nothing wrong with either of them. Just got to know how to drive them correctly. So that is the end of that, my dears. Thank you for your patience and for your tolerance. And I'm sure was a lot of recapping of stuff. Uh, if ever you have questions about any of this content or about books that I've mentioned or references I've made, or you just want to reach out, don't hesitate. You can email me at leah at thehealthysensitive.com. You can also find me at leah, it's not leah. You can also find me at www.thehealthysensitive.com. Have a fabulous day and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bye.